Any biblical text, we're wondering a few things. We're wondering, what does this text say? And on that level, we're looking at things like grammar and syntax and just dictionary meanings and historical backdrop. And you know, we're trying to understand what did the original author intend his original audience to understand. So on one level, when we read the scripture, we're wondering, what does this say? On another level, we're asking, what does it mean? And that's the interpretive job. And again, it gets us to that question, what did the original author intend to convey to an original audience? What, what was he trying to say? But these texts are meant to um, function on a third level that uh, isn't maybe always as obvious or in the front of our mind. And that is, what were they trying to perform? What did this text intend for us to do or to think or to feel? And I would imagine that you all have a feeling if you're just present to it, if you just would notice, you have a feeling probably about this text in Zephaniah. As we come in our, in our uh, ordinary time long series in the Minor Prophets, we come to this second and last reading in Zephaniah. I'm sure there's a feeling that is brought up in all of us as we see once again that the Lord God, the world's one true creator, Lord God, is bringing his purposes to pass and doing so very zealously and doing so in this text through judgment so that his zeal is meant to seem like a fire that would purge and purify the earth. Which is what, by the way, connects us to our gospel reading. That obedience or purity, Jesus says, is a matter of the heart. Um, we might say, as, as we would try to understand our own daily moment-by-moment -moment behavior, that the things we do come from something that's subconscious. And part of what goes wrong with our outside-in approaches to trying to be obedient is that our subconscious reacts before our external will can stop us or that you know, that sense of, well, I'll just stop this because there's these pre-conscious motivations. So try to feel this for a minute of what Jesus was saying. That the kind of natural, organic obedience that Jesus had in mind is a matter of the heart and not of the brain. What if the kind of pre-consciousness that Jesus was talking about is not merely precognition, but pre-feeling, pre-sense of what's really most true about us, our heart being that internal spirit part of us that joins with our will and, and makes that thing in us that wants what it really wants and that external kind of behavioral changes don't get to the heart of it. Well, the second thing that these readings might be asking us to feel <clears throat> is that though God's purposes can seem like this very zealous fire, the judgment and disaster are never the last word. That the last word is always a break with the past, a restoration, a salvation, a transformation, a recreation, a renewal, something like that. 
And this is what the text means, if you want to look at it, where it says, the Lord has taken away your punishment and that you'll no longer have to be ashamed of all those acts of rebellion. This is meant to help us see a cleansed conscience. So just feel that for a moment. And it's been a long time for me, be 40 years in January. But I, I have never forgotten being saved or converted. And the number one aspect of that probably being a cleansed conscience. Because I certainly could have had all manner of badness on my conscience. Bad as, I mean, you just make a list, I'm sure it was there. Can you feel a cleansed conscience? And that they'll call on the name of the Lord. This is, the redu- this is a resumption of relationship. And that they'll serve with him shoulder to shoulder. The, the Hebrew there is literally with a single shoulder. And it's just meant for us to picture. And so again, ask yourself how you feel about this. Just walking side by side, arm in arm with God. This is meant to help us see a renewal of purpose of being God's cooperative friends. And then God says, when I'm done with my sort of zealous consuming fire, I'll leave you, again, if you look at your text, with the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. So meekness, you know, is just an attitude of life that doesn't exalt oneself over others or my needs or my desires over another. Humble in this context means something like this, that I'm not self-sufficient, that I have an attitude of genuine dependence upon God. And then thirdly, trust. This is simply confidence in the character and the works and the truth of God. Now, I suppose I could be wrong about this as I could be wrong about anything, but it appears to me, if I'm just being honest, that modern people don't think too much about cultivating these traits. That it's not first on most people's mind to think about how to cultivate meekness, humility, a trust in somebody other than ourselves actually can seem kind of dumb. You know what I mean? On the surface, like who would do that? Like if you do that in this fast-paced, crazy society, you're just going to get run over. And who wants to get run over? But when the dust settles on God's project in humanity, when God's zealous consuming fire just kind of leaves what's left, as he says in this text... This is going to be the kind of people who are the result. The meek, the humble, the confident in God. It is your Lord Jesus himself who said, it is the meek who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. It is the meek who see themselves serving God and God's purposes and others who will find central space. This is just another aspect of what we sometimes call the upside down kingdom or the great reversal that the people who through manipulating race uh, relationships and amassing power, who have found a place to work on the earth and a way to ground and settle themselves so that they can have their will and afflict their will on others, they will be completely marginalized if not destroyed. And what will be left are the meek and the humble and those who trust in God. Now this I think, Um, is where the text might want us to feel something. And this is in verse 17. Your God is with you. 
And then the text gives us these descriptors of what that's like and what it means. The Lord your God is with you as a mighty warrior. That is the one who lacks no power to save you or to deliver you from your enemies or your sin. He is mighty. He is almighty, which says he has complete competence to do what he wants to do. That God remains among you as one who is fully competent in his love towards you. And second, he'll take great, great delight in you. Again, this is a very relational idea that means something like he's happy to have you back. And like a mother with a child taking this child into her arms, she quiets the child. Flying home from Kansas yesterday, I was connecting in Dallas and uh, as often happens in those kind of connecting cities, you know, it's the, it's the Disneyland Express, right? Any of you who fly in and out Orange County, you know, it's just so often the Disneyland Express. And this is, I don't know what was happening, but this was one of those Disneyland Express days. All kinds of young families getting on the airplane. And, have you, and can you picture how tense young moms get with fussy babies? I feel so bad for them. I mean, I feel bad for me, but I also feel bad for them. You know, they're just so hard trying to quiet their baby in love. And then I sometimes am able to watch their own countenance deeply change as they successfully quiet their baby in love. And the baby's facial you know, features soften, moms soften right after it. And this is the picture of a God who's been zealously trying to move the earth according to his purposes. And that as he is able to create make those purposes come to pass, there's a softening in him and a softening that comes to us as we abide in his arms. For next, the text says, in his love, he'll no longer rebuke you. But again, the idea is here, rather he'll calm you with his love. Martin Luther commenting on this passage has said, so that you will have in the secret places of your heart a very quiet and peaceful silence. That is, God says he'll no longer rebuke us. Luther says, this is so that. You'll have in the secret places of your heart. Now think again of the gospel passage. You will have in the secret places of your heart a very quiet and peaceful silence. Now I don't have it in front of me, but you have it in front of you. Could you just please look at the last part of that gospel reading, just real quick? And let those words fall over your mind. I, I even forget what they are. Envy, hatred, strife, lust. And, and kind of picture those filling the average human heart. You know, we would all say aspects of that filling our hearts more than we want. And now just imagine this Lutheran thought that in the secret places of your heart, rather than all those things, that from God's great delight in you, they would be replaced with a very quiet and peaceful silence. And then as this is all done, the text says that God would rejoice over us with singing. And the metaphor kind of continues here that as the baby becomes peaceful in the mother's arms, the mother begins to not feel anxious towards the baby, but again, 
but again begins to rejoice over her baby in love. And the picture here is of God then delighting over us in his resounding songs. So those of you who sometimes have a, 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 you struggle with kind of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God, well, this, is, this should be a way to bring you to some great harmony. Because this is the picture of the father of the prodigal son. This is God from the truest place of his being, if we can talk about God that way. You know, this is God from the truest place of who he is, who always issues compassionate invitations to return home and to store relationship with him. And so through these minor prophets, we've been learning that though we resist God actively, he doesn't abandon us. And that the last word is always the, the promise of final redemption and the hope that's found in all these prophets we've been reading. And if we were reading the major prophets, it would be the same thing. They all point to this final fulfillment in Christ. I, I think Dallas Willard actually wrote these sentences, but I'm not sure that they, they come from, they sound like Dallas to me, they, they come from a little article in the Spirit, uh, Spiritual Formation Bible. But I think they help us draw together what we've been reading in these prophets. So I want to read this sentence to you. It's a bit dense, so um, hang on. What we're seeing, I think, is that the aim of God in history, so can you get that? The aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons. So now just think of a community of human beings who will be formed from however old the earth is until Jesus comes back again, an all-inclusive community of loving persons who have ruling within them this quiet, peaceful heart. And they have God himself at the very center of this community as this community's prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That's where this is going. And this is why no matter how far you or humanity gets away, there's always an invitation into this community. That it's both the zealous purposes and love of God that move creation in that direction. And so what these prophets are doing, they were doing to Israel, and I hope that they're doing to us as we read them and interact with them, is that like on a morning like this morning, we could ask ourselves, where in my heart, now think of the gospel reading again, where in my heart do I find rebellion or resistance to this zealous purpose of God to create an all-inclusive community of loving persons who would have God at the center as their prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. And so this maybe acts, makes us ask, well, when I have rebellion in my heart towards this thing that God's doing, what happens? I like this notion from Tom Wright where he says, so what does this divine love do when confronted by denial and rejection? What does it do when humans who have the capacity to share in the innermost being of the creator twist that capacity into the opposite, into the capacity to hate and sneer and spit and snarl and kick and stab and wound and kill? Does love then say, well, perhaps love is all very well when things are going fine, but now that it's all gone, all gone wrong, maybe we ought to try that other way. 
And again, this is what connects, one of the many things that connects the Old Testament and the New Testament as a synergistic whole is this. Know the good news that, put, that Jesus put into practice during his public career. Let me say that again. No, we don't go the other way. Because the good news that Jesus put into practice during his public career and that he enacted as he went to his death is this. Love, when faced with rejection, overcomes it with yet more love. Thank God. I shudder to think of how many times I rejected God from about 10 to 19. How many times I rejected overtures, how many times I rejected my own conscience about God, how many times I violated what I knew to be right and wrong over and over and over again. Now you just add that together by billions of human beings who have lived since creation to today and all the pushback against God and it finally comes down to Jesus. The love of God when faced with ultimate rejection, overcomes it with even yet more love. Now there's a reason I began the way I began this morning. Is this one thing to intellectually understand something about the love of God? It's another thing to feel it. It's another thing to experience it. It's another thing to have it actually taking root and, and working in our hearts as both our texts have wanted us to think about this morning and to really experience it. So I'm gonna stop now and we're gonna have, I wanna just forewarn you here, we're gonna have a little bit of extended time of quiet. So I wanna ask you to do, as I always do, take, take your bulletins out of your hands now or your pens or pencils or smartphones, or whatever you're taking notes on and set them aside and bring yourself to stillness and do what you can to make yourself physically comfortable. So that might mean scooting back in your chair, relaxing your shoulders, make yourself physically comfortable. And I wanna invite you to bring your most honest heart, the central core of your being, you know, that God-given power to choose, to initiate, to create, that inner part of you to which every other outward component functions around. Just bring that core of yourself now to this moment and just be alert to it, conscious of it. And we do so this morning as a community of people who have great confidence in the power of the word of God. We actually believe that it's alive and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword and it's able to penetrate to the deepest parts of us, conscious, subconscious, pre-conscious. And we're also a people who trust in the Holy Spirit. And we're now inviting the Holy Spirit to begin to move in this room and to move on us as a people and individually. Word and Spirit. And you don't have to do anything much here. You know, when you sit in front of a fire in winter, you're just there. You're just in front of the fire. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to understand how fire works. You don't even have to be particularly sincere or alert. The fire just automatically warms you. So I want you now to sit with the Word and the Spirit. 
And let this breath of God, both in the word and in the spirit, begin to touch your heart. That you might feel what Zephaniah intended you to feel. The psalmist said, You, O Lord, are merciful and gracious. slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You may feel that your sins are stacked really high or your places of fickleness are stacked really high. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him, says the psalmist. We live in a day in which it feels like everything pulls us away from God, pulls us away from our commitment, pulls our feelings out of shape, And Paul, wrestling deeply to help people understand the reality in which that happens and the reality that will be the final differentiating force, wrote, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For I have loved you, said Jeremiah, speaking God's voice to the people of God. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I've loved you with an everlasting love, and I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. And finally, hear the words of your Lord Jesus Christ. As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so I have loved you. Abide in my love.